0: This is Hashtag Authentic, a podcast for entrepreneurs and creatives online. I'm Sarah Tasker, and this is episode 66. Hey, everybody, welcome to the episode. So my guest this week is someone I consider to be a business role model, and I know I'm not alone in saying that. I first discovered her when I picked up a copy of her book on a women in a bookshop a few years back and her calm and confident wisdom has travelled around with me to events and to meetings ever since in my handbag and more recently in my ears via her amazing podcast. We recorded this conversation a few weeks back just before my book came out when I was feeling fairly highly strung. And as well as all of the incredible insight that Otega shares in the conversation you're about to hear, one of my really big takeaways this day was just the strong and steady self-belief that she possesses. She left me feeling inspired afresh, and I think it's going to be true for a lot of you folks listening at home as well. Here's our conversation. Hi Otega, welcome to Hashtag Authentic.
1: Hi Sarah, how are you? I'm
0: good, thank you. How are you?
1: I'm good, I'm good. It's a lovely, it's kind of feeling like a spring morning here in London.
0: Yeah. Um, So
1: it's kind of making me feel super productive.
0: The difference that sunlight makes, I think, especially if you're self-employed. Yeah, massively. It's like, it just fills your day with energy. So I'm feeling good today. Could you introduce yourself and all of the things that you do for anyone who's not come across your work yet?
1: Sure. So I am a writer. I am an occasional brand consultant and I'm also the founder of Women Who, which is a platform for creative working women that I set up about two years ago. So that involves sort of online content, a newsletter, a podcast that I host called In Good Company, um, real life events, just whatever platforms and channels and content that I think will help working women work better. Um, I also wrote a book. Two years ago now, almost, but gosh, that's a while ago, Um, I wrote a career guide called Little Black Book, a toolkit for working women, which is pretty much what it says on the tin. Um, And I am currently working on my second book, which is a memoir about my relationship with money.
0: Oh, exciting. I didn't know what your second book was about. That's good. I want to dig into that too then. Um, So, how did this end up being your focus? Like, I feel like there's a real coherent thread through everything you do.
1: I think it just happened quite organically like I mean I used to work in advertising and that's what I did as soon as I left uni and I did that for about five years before realizing that it it just wasn't for me for so many reasons and so I quit my last full-time job and was gonna just freelance for a bit um and just kind of try and figure out what I wanted to do career-wise like I really didn't have an idea but I kind of knew that I'd come to the end of my tether with advertising and I always kind of I had in the back of my mind that I wanted to start some sort of platform or community with women and maybe incorporate creative work into it and it felt like it sort of was just a response to how I was feeling with the topics that I wanted to dive into but actually one of my friends pointed out to me I mean I've always been a really sort of engaged feminist and one of my friends pointed out to me that you know I'd, I'd done projects you know this is a really old friend I'd done projects like this at school and got involved with in talks and like student journalism and i think i've just always been really interested in feminism i've always been pretty career driven so this just felt like a really natural um
0: marriage of those two things was there anyone in your life who was already an entrepreneur like a family member or no no not at all um my parents
1: are both you know they're both professionals they're both accountants um but i didn't i did i didn't really set out to start a business or I didn't think about it in that way um I didn't really set out to become self-employed either if that makes sense like I just it just sort of start things kind of start to patch together um and I've kind of ended up where I am now three years on but you know I only started referring to myself as self-employed about a year in in my head I felt like I was unemployed which isn't <laughs> I was working but self-employment freelancing just wasn't something I was really aware of and I did just kind of fall into it by virtue of not liking my last job and quitting without a job to go to obviously needing to earn money and not wanting to get a full-time job so I was just by default a freelancer um
0: but yeah it wasn't really a hugely conscious decision did anything change for you then when you kind of reframed it in your head as a freelancer because I'm thinking about me like I Called myself a freelancer for quite a while and then one day had this epiphany and was like, oh no wait, this is a business, I'm a business owner and that changed a lot for me about how I approached my work.
1: Yeah, I think I've always been quite business oriented and like starting Women Who, even though Women Who is like very much a small business and it goes through kind of peaks and troughs in terms of how much focus I put into it but I always knew that I wanted it to be almost kind of like a social good business, but not a charity. Um because I knew that I wanted to do it as sort of part of my work, as part of my um what I count as, you know, making a living. Mm. Um but I think I, I switched out of the kind of freelancing mindset, I guess, maybe about a year and a half in when it felt like what I was doing was bigger than that. And like you say, there is this common thread and I think Women Who is a brand. I think I myself being realistic I'm a brand and so that just felt slightly bigger than you know I was you know pursuing like commercial partnerships and that kind of thing it felt very much like a business as opposed to just a kind of even though it is mostly one woman show it just felt like there was just quite a subtle difference
0: it's you said there that you're a brand and that's a weird way to kind of live your life as well isn't it because there's the there's you the brand and then there's you the person and how Mm. how do you find navigating that divide Oh, there really
1: isn't a divide for me, if I'm being really honest. Like, I don't have, like, a strategy in terms of... I have a strategy in terms of what work I want to do because it has to be stuff that fulfills me creatively and I feel aligns with my, like, perspective on the world and on feminism and work on creativity. So in that sense, I have I am strategic about what work I do. But in terms of, like, my personal brand, which I know is a term that a lot of other people don't like, but I don't mind it, like, what I share on social media is not filtered um so that brand is very much who I am as a person I know everyone kind of says that in terms of authenticity and who knows that might change in the future but I almost just can't be bothered Mm -hmm. to curate it that much um so it is very much a reflection of me and what I think and I think sometimes people respond to that um which is really nice I think people respond to what is just kind of my genuine thoughts um but I don't I I don't think too heavily about putting out a specific picture of myself. I just kind of, I think, but I think I sort of have an inbuilt filter. Yeah. I think, I think we all do. Yeah. I think it's probably more that like I don't think about it, but you know, there are certain things that I probably wouldn't share, but it's just about kind of maintaining a sense of privacy. But I, you know, I am cognizant as well. The stuff that I share kind of builds people's perceptions of me in a professional arena. And some people it might put me off working, put them off working with me. Like, I'm quite sort of direct and outspoken on Twitter, for instance, and there are some people who I know would definitely not want to work with them on account of that, but that to me doesn't really really
0: bother me well, I think that's actually an asset because it's kind of self selection better that they figure that exactly. out beforehand
1: exactly, yeah, I think that's a really positive way of thinking about it i'm like well if you don't if you don't like my opinions then you, you probably won't like me, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: but it does to me that goes contrary to what so many women feel, which is that we've kind of been conditioned to think we have to always be liked by everybody, regardless of whether there are people or not. And you, you don't, you don't strike me as someone that struggles with that. Like you seem to just take up your space so well, so unapologetically, oh, like I genuinely really admire it. Have you always been that way? Like, is that just kind of how you were?
1: Um, I think I've, I'm a pretty naturally confident person. I would say that. I think my friends and people who've known me for a long time would agree with that. I was, you know, confident at school, confident at university and, and pretty social. But I definitely had my confidence dented massively by a couple of jobs that I had uh after I graduated and a couple of agencies that I worked at and I really kind of retreated into myself and actually it was really funny because I would tell my friends what my working life was like and how I didn't feel I was connecting with anyone. I felt really nervous, had huge imposter syndrome and they really couldn't tally it up with the version of me that they knew in a more social context. Um, And I think what it says is that those environments weren't right for me. Mm. Um, And for so many reasons, I think they aren't right for a lot of people. And I I meet a lot of people who struggle with advertising and ad agencies for similar reasons. Um, But I think then becoming self-employed about three years ago, that kind of confidence came creeping back and and the way I look at it is I I don't think everyone likes me like I know there are people that don't like me but I also don't really care like I I care about the opinions of the people that I trust and like so why would I care what someone who I don't know that well thinks about me I don't know I just it just seems illogical um to me and I think you kind of have to accept in life that not everyone's gonna like you and just kind of deal with it but I know that that is and I don't strive towards likability. And actually, I credit Roxanne Gay, the writer, with that, because in her book, Bad Feminist, she writes really well about how, you know, like you say, we're kind of right from childhood. Women are kind of brought up to believe that they have to make themselves as likable and palatable to others as possible. But that doesn't get you places. Like, it, you know, I'm not saying... I think I like to think I have a real sense of integrity and fairness and decency. And I am really nice to people. I make a conscious effort to be really nice. But I think striving for likability doesn't get you places because it means that you end up putting other people's needs above your own constantly and yeah i just i I don't know i i find i find that quite simple and it's also like a muscle i think you kind of build it over time get less concerned about what people think and i almost just find it quite amusing now
0: (laughs) i've heard a lot of older women kind of um I guess kind of past their 40s who say that it comes really naturally and that's one of the things I'm really looking forward to yeah I've been a i
1: have been I mean I'm not I'm not yet 30 but I definitely think it's something that like my early 20s um were very much about worrying about what other people think and now I'm just a bit like I have my own goals um and I have my own things to worry about so I don't really I, I don't really have the energy is like you know I don't have the energy to to expend worrying um that much about what the wrong people think about me like you know people that I trust professionally like you know my agent my editor I care what they think about me and if they call me out on something and say oh I'm not quite sure about this then I will definitely listen but uh, like I have this isn't right. I have like 6,000 Twitter followers of course not all of them are gonna agree with me or like me or Going to be people that I necessarily agree with, so that that is kind of for me the filter.
0: You make it sound really rational and logical.
1: Maybe I don't know. I think it's definitely it's just something that gets easier, but it is it's something that gets easier. It is a conscious decision that I think you have to make. But I am aware that I may be simplifying it slightly, and it's not to say that I don't have my confidence dented from time to time. But I kind of have quite a decent amount of faith in myself and in my judgment and in my taste so I think that kind of carries me through
0: it's self-belief I think at the the heart of it isn't it yes exactly kind of on a related note I suppose the other thing that I hear from a lot of the women I speak to is this fear we have of 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 taking up space as a business owner of calling ourselves things like an entrepreneur I think Mm -hmm. I've heard you say before possibly with Emma Gannon that you you encourage women not to use the word freelancer and um there was a recent debate that's been going on online about words like mumpreneur a Girl boss. Um yeah. where do where do you think all this comes from? Like why are we so frightened of the words entrepreneur?
1: I think it's it's funny because I wasn't I'm now kind of going through a phase where I'm like, I'm not sure whether I call myself an entrepreneur, but it's only because Women Who is to some extent on the back burner whilst mm. I get a few sort of new projects off the ground and doing some back end work with it and also of course writing another book um but i think there is a tendency to think that entrepreneurs are just kind of big you know businesses and it kind of has to be like a guy in a suit who's got 30 million in vc funding from silicon valley but actually i'm really interested in telling stories about sort of small businesses and and you know small businesses are the lifeblood of the economy like in terms of turnover and employment and that sort of thing like Small businesses are where it's at, but it's because we hear the narrative narratives of these kind of massive unicorn success stories that that has become the definition of an entrepreneur. But I think it's it's much more almost kind of low level than that. But at the same time, I think there's also a tendency to kind of glamorize it. So I, for instance, I now say no to certain sorts of um say like panel discussions or talks where people want me to come and talk about being an entrepreneur or a business because I'm like, oh I'm not at that level and my business hasn't done this this and this so I probably can't advise you on that but I can advise on branding or kind of slightly smaller things and that will hopefully change over time as the business grows but I am also keen to kind of keep things in perspective about where I am in my journey like I'm very much still in that kind of bootstrapping and scraping stuff together stage and you know if I have another project that I want to concentrate on women who might go a bit quieter but I think it's just because of you know the picture of an entrepreneur is just like a white guy with loads of money it's Richard
0: Branson on his island yeah exactly and that is just so rare So rare. And I feel like actually that carries over to how we think of business. Like whenever I have conversations about things like business or marketing or any of those kind of words, Mm. I think there's a tendency for us all to seize up because our experience of business and marketing has been quite often quite negative. It has been that kind of like glass office suites and men in suits and it's felt really alienating. So to kind of bring that into our passions and our creativity it's almost like we need a different vocabulary that's, that doesn't yeah, bring all I that think, stigma.
1: I think that's a really good point, actually, because I don't think, like, for instance, I think what I do, I think I like to operate with a sense of integrity and I have like a higher purpose and, you know, I make decisions based, you know, I, I'm commercially minded, but I make decisions based on almost this kind of self-nudging, this is what mm. I want to do and mm. this is what I want to talk about. Um And that doesn't really align with businesses like I probably am not a great candidate for investment at the moment because I have other um imperatives which are much more personal and I'll probably keep it that way to be honest um but I think that then makes people think oh if I'm not this you know capitalist shark then I'm not a business but that's not true like I'm definitely a business according to the tax man so. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah it's it's uh I think you just kind of have to reframe the way you think about it.
0: Yeah, same here. It's something actually I'm getting increasingly passionate about because I think i found in my experience, I don't get taken seriously unless I try and change myself to play by that that mould, you know, kind of turning up to meetings. If I turn up as me in, like, my dress and my ballet shoes and, uh, you know, um, if I don't try and play the macho game you are immediately dismissed. And so it's really tempting to think, actually, I have to play along. I have to get the yeah. shoulder pads and everything else. But actually, why? Like, I've built a really successful business by being exactly who I am now. And yeah. it's we're ready for a change. There's so many women building amazing businesses right now oh. by being exactly who they are. Totally. And I
1: think, I don't know, I think the metrics of success are changing. Like, I think what you've managed to do and you know, for instance, even something like having a really consistent tone of voice. I watch huge brands with billions of pounds fail miserably on social media. It's like they have a lot to learn from us. Yeah. Actually. Um, but just because they're the ones that are sort of long-standing companies with like what's of funding, you're kind of seen as a little guy. But actually, you could apply your learnings to them on a bigger scale. They they have much more to learn from you in that respect. So I think I think people like us who are sort of almost a bit more grassroots are kind of really at the cutting edge of what's happening. And it's, you know, I see the same thing when I consult for brands or clients that often a lot of them, they're just like five years behind. And I'm just like, where, where did you get this insight from? Because it's, it's just so, it's just so dated. And yeah, I'm, you know, I am on Twitter every day. I mean, for my sins, I'm on Twitter every day and Instagram and like, I can tell you, that this you know meme that was popular one week ago is now overplayed and you can't use it in your marketing but you know then they'll bring something out they'll be like let's do like a Harlem shake and I'm like are you kidding me like you know something like that it's like that is dead it's gone but they're really far behind and so you know that's why they bring in I'm sure you do lots of consulting oh well. that's why they bring in people like us because we literally have our finger on the pulse and I don't think you can underestimate that.
0: Yeah, this has been my experience actually of the publishing world. My book is out, it's out a week today, is when we're recording. Um, So, slightly terrified right now, but um, like it just seems like such a huge beast that it moves really slowly and it it can't be agile and it can't kind of be dynamic in the way that small businesses can. Um, And kind of like publishing and watching how it's all worked has made me go. Oh, this this is why publishing is dying. Not really because people are <laughs> buying books, but because kind of it's 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 like it's still how it was twenty years ago.
1: Yeah, it's 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 in many ways it's quite antiquated. Yeah, uh, the way it operates. And it's 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 a very old school industry and like even, you know, within the creative industries and within media, publishing to me so I've worked in um worked in advertising obviously I've kind of worked on that side of things and I have kind of have experience of other types of media but publishing seems to me particularly old school when it really kind of stands out and I think for me just kind of I mean I love my publishers and they're really, really brilliant but just kind of looking at the industry as a whole as I've kind of become immersed in it by virtue of having written my own books um is it's it was a real eye-opener for me actually um but You know, I think there are people out there who are trying. They're kind of younger. There's hopefully lots of younger people feeling from the bottom, but it just happens really slowly. Fortunately, a lot of the people who work in publishing happen to be very privileged, or there's a lot of sorts of people who've been in the same company for sort of a years and maybe aren't quite understanding of what people, how people are consuming. And, you know, the importance, for instance, of like having like an Instagrammable, Book cover or something, and you know, that's not an imperative for everyone, but that was definitely something that I was conscious of, and you know, my publisher is really supportive of that. But I also know there are pockets of publishing where people kind of turn their nose up at that being an imperative, and I'm just like, Well, I think that helps sell books, and I wanted my book to
0: sell, so that's what we did. So, yeah. So let's talk about your book. So you've self published it initially, and then it was picked up by a publisher. Am I right in saying yes. that? Yes, that's what and I think I read somewhere that your initial like print run was only around 200 copies.
1: Yeah, it was it was it was I think I paid
0: for 200 but then the publisher
1: the printers threw in an extra 50 because they made a printing error. So <laughs> uh yeah, it was it was about 250
0: copies. So were these like just under your bed? You were going to send them out yourself?
1: Yeah, I I spent weeks. Oh my god, I don't miss it it's all in fact it was months going to the post office every couple of weeks um I I self-published in probably the most lo-fi way possible but I literally just sold it through a Squarespace website and then the orders would come in and I would literally package them up write the addresses on them take them to the post office I became very friendly with my local post office (laughs) lady and she was eventually she's like what are you posting and I was like "Books," and like brought her on um and yeah but I mean I was really glad when I got a proper book deal and I didn't have to that was like the biggest relief I was like oh my god no more trips to the post office
0: <laughs> you appreciated That's, it all the more yeah exactly so kind of were you not expecting it to be a big hit or were you just thinking I want to get it out in the world and and you weren't bothered about the initial means
1: uh I wasn't expecting it to be a big hit at all I wasn't I didn't even call it self-publishing until I got a, a proper book deal and that's kind of how people refer to it to me it was just like a creative project so I I self-published Little Black Book in order to coincide with the launch of Women Who and it was kind of like a launch mechanic you know just kind of set it make it stand out a little bit and be like this is kind of what I want to do so it was almost like a special project and that was the first special project and I mean I was really surprised at how quickly that print run sold out so it sold out in two days (laughs) and I remember texting a friend because I'd set my alerts up so that every time a copy sold I'd get an email and I was expecting to get like a couple a week and it was just like I had to switch off because (laughs) I was getting so many emails um and so it just sold out and and you know it got picked up by like it's nice that and fast company in the US and which I just still don't understand but I I think I I knew how to sort of promote it like I had proper professional photos taken of it and I'd kind of networked so I finally managed to kind of pitch it to a few journalists and a couple of them wrote about it. So I think that was what helped it sell. But, um, but then obviously what, and one of the copies ended up in the hands of my now editor. Um, and when we met, I think she realised, because also it's selling the book for £10. I didn't have any kind of platform to speak of. And so she obviously realised, but well, hang on, you're selling... 250 copies in two days at 10 pounds you don't have any platform you don't have a proper publisher behind you like that is a really remarkable Mm. you know those those are really impressive numbers um and so obviously for this and and it was good as well because that kind of proved there was a demand for it so i can now see i can see now why they approached me. Um, but at the time it was it was just completely I, I went to this meeting with my editor, Michelle, um, because we'd been put in touch by by just a stranger, literally, someone on Instagram DM'd me. Um, and I went to this meeting just like thinking we were just gonna have a chat. Like I, I didn't know anything about publishing. I Googled her on the way there, and I was like, oh, she seems quite senior. <laughs> public like publicity and publishing director at Fourth State. I was like, oh bloody hell. Um, and then about five minutes into our meeting, she was like, yeah, we would like to publish it. So it was all very, um, it took me by surprise, but um, obviously it was a good thing.
0: That's really fascinating because from the outside, it seems like, from the outside, it, like, it seems like, of course, they want to grab it. Like, you were a sure win for them. And I imagine, actually, there probably could have been a series of publishers fighting over it if they'd got, if they'd been in touch with what was going on enough.
1: Maybe, yeah, maybe. I like I think it was really... I mean, I think my and Michelle, is really smart, but I think it was really smart of her to to take a punt on it. Yeah. Um, I think it was, and I think it sort of was a testament to the way she kind of looks for new talent and new ideas because I didn't have an agent. I didn't, I just, I, I really, like, that is not how people get book deals generally. Um, but obviously, I think, you know, it was a good bet and she could see that it had legs, so, uh
0: Yeah. Do you think it would have been a different book if you had kind of gone through conventional channels and and not had the freedom to write the book you completely wanted to write for yourself?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, I think the fact that I'd written, the you know, I'd already kind of written, you know, the first version of the book. I ended up changing it for the sort of proper version and making it longer and, you know, making it a bit more detailed. But I think the fact that I had already published it myself, I you know, had had feedback on what people responded mm. to. You know, by the time it came to you know, so I, by the time it came to kind of writing the kind of version Fourth Estate, it'd been out for maybe it'd been out in the world for maybe six months. So I knew that people really were really interested in money, for instance. So I added another chapter about money and I just, you know, and I'd had a lot of time to ruminate on it. And I think also I think credit to um my editor michelle and to fourth state generally i think they really respected the fact that i'd come up with this idea on my own and so they gave me a level of ownership that i'm not sure authors always get like down to little things like me picking the font on the cover and being like no this is the font i want to use and like sending them you know the font files <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm really um sort of detail oriented um, I think there's a polite way of saying
0: it. <laughs> That's actually quite reassuring to hear because I've micromanaged my book. Yeah, yeah,
1: you <laughs> have had such patience with me. Um, and But things like that, I think, because I came up with this idea myself and I think they just really trusted that I knew my audience. Um, so they really didn't
0: interfere. Um, Yeah, it was a really smooth process, actually. Which I guess has then set you up for this new book you're writing kind of... They've built that trust in you. You've got that yeah. kind of working relationship so that you know you can write the book you want to write again.
1: Yeah, it's re- it's really trusting, actually, now that I think about it. Like, I came up with the title. we have never had any... Like, obviously, my editor and my agent have both fed into it, but I would say the core idea is is just what I came up with and what I wanted to write about. And it's title that I came up with. They were like, yeah, let's go with it. The length that I said, the topics I want to cover, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. You know, they're just really really trusting um and even down to things like you know not breathing down my neck for to see they were like you're going to send me chapters as you go I was like no I'll send it to you when it's all done like cool so really yeah I'm really lucky in that sense um and I think there is a, a, a really huge level of trust between me and my editor my agent but actually I'd say the three of us are friends as well like I think it's 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 a really rare professional relationship but like I think most of the time when we're together we barely talk about work and then we're like oh crap we've <laughs> yeah. five minutes left I think we there was some that needed you to sign and you know so I'm, I'm I'm really lucky
0: with those relationships that I have that's actually the ideal situation if you can find it and how do you find kind of that collaborative process when so much of your work you do obviously just on your own and the decisions are all only down to you have you enjoyed having kind of extra people give you that input yeah definitely because I trust
1: their opinions um and I think it only works because of that, like I really, really want to hear what they think and and I think also i I know that we're on the same page in terms of of views on the world and politics and gender and feminism and money and social class and privilege and all these things like i I know that we think the same things and we might send each other a text about the same thing that we've read or Um, so for me, it's good. It's almost like having like three slightly different versions of me. I don't know. Sounds really arrogant, but it's like, I don't know. They kind of test and challenge me in a, in a good way. And, but for the most part, they're just, I think they're really happy for me to, to guide it and to go off this gut instinct. I'm actually surprised at how little push, I mean, I haven't, I haven't sent the book off yet. So this might all change when it comes to, (laughs) but I haven't had like huge amounts of pushback in terms of the direction of anything that like I think they just really trust me um, let's talk about this again in a year's time when I've done the edits <laughs>
0: <laughs> well I would say you've got proven form haven't you like they'd be they'd be silly not to because you know your audience and you know what you're talking about you mentioned the second book and that it's going to be focusing on money it's like, are you able to tell us more about it or is it you yeah, too much yeah. in the middle of it no absolutely um so it is
1: a money memoir um, so it's a, it's a book. It's like a, and it's a properly it's a really long book actually. Um, about my relationship with money over the years, right from childhood through to the present day, and how that's changed. What my sort of anxieties and vulnerabilities and mistakes and successes have been. How my upbringing and my family, you know, how that's contributed to my views on money and how my relationship with money has affected my life in terms of career choices and. Friendships and relationships, like it's it's really really broad. But then it's also it's it's partly memoir, but it's also partly sort of cultural commentary. So it's not just about me. It's also on a wider level how my experiences with money relate to women's experiences with money in a much broader sense. So I kind of talk about things like you know analyzing the gender pay gap and you know beauty tax. You know how much in class and privilege. It's really packing a lot in. You know emotional labour. It's It's basically an excuse for me to talk about all these thoughts that I've had sort of rumbling around my head for years, absolutely years. Um, And just hopefully it's really, really honest. And I'm hoping that by, I'm basically writing the book for quite selfish reasons, because I'm hoping that if I share really honestly about myself, it'll start a conversation where other people start sharing really honestly, because I really want to talk about money. So this is just me kind of my offering. I'm like, right, guys laying
0: my cards on the tables okay now it's your turn that's basically why I'm writing the book it is such a necessary conversation and it's one that we are I think we're really frightened of it especially here in the UK like we're really scared of talking about money um why why do you think we are that way if you've got theories on that
1: oh yeah I've got loads I might have to wait for it to come out no I think <laughs> I think I think the main thing is it's it's just I think we treat your our bank balances as an indicator of sort of moral worth mm. and almost intelligence. And that's just, you know, there are so many factors that go into determining how well-off people are, you know, or how poor they are. And, and you know, a huge amount of it comes down to privilege, not bringing factors outside your control. But we do tend to treat rich people as good, worthwhile, mm. and poor people as bad, you know. It's the kind of like feckless poor, narrative and so then all this shame comes into it as well um, and there's but there's also shame at both ends of the spectrum like I think one of the things I look at is people who are pretty well off who are embarrassed about that and and conceal it but then it's funny because you get that and then you also get people who you know are really sort of poor and are also embarrassed about that and try to conceal it and it's for very different reasons but I think there's so much shame wrapped up and and, and money touches everything in your life like even without thinking about it, I think I was surprised at how much, I actually had to stop adding chapters and be like, do you know, what? I actually don't, I can't write about this <laughs> as well because it literally affects every single area of your life. There is nothing that I can't find a link back to money about. So I kind of had to say, these are the most important things to talk about for now and maybe I'll cover the rest. I don't book know. too. Oh yeah, I do Do you know what I mean? But it's just, it affects absolutely everything and I think we are all thinking about money constantly
0: even if we don't admit it it's kind of the elephant in the room of every conversation isn't it exactly and it can be such a huge wedge in
1: relationships and in terms of how you relate to other people um and you know in friendships as well and familial situations and at work like there's it's just so it's such fertile ground and like you say people don't like talking about it but the less we talk about it the less transparent we are the worse people feel about it so i'm hoping that we can just begin to have more more honest conversations about it
0: i know for myself like i went from being quite heavily in debt to building my business and and having like a decent income in a really in a pretty short space of time mm. and that was the first point when i was really like oh my gosh i'm so messed up about money like i was really confronted by all these issues that i'd kind of tried never to face yeah and then was like well what do i what do i do about this like who do you talk to how do you get help
1: i think for me i mean there are you know actual financial therapists and stuff out there and i think for some people that can be in like financial coaches if you're looking for more practical advice i think for me the solution has been being more honest Mm -hmm. and like i've got a few friends now and one in particular who I can just have really honest money conversations about, and it might be sort of bitching and being a bit negative or talking about a fear that I have. Um, but I think for me that's been such a weight off my mind and it doesn't necessarily change my money situations. Like talking to my friends about it, isn't what changes my money situations like the things that change, are, uh, you know, work and, and maybe family for some people. Um, but it just makes me feel better about stuff and it makes me feel more capable and more normal um and i think for me one of the things i talk about is i've always had quite a lot of anxiety around money for various reasons which you know i kind of talk through in the book and it's about how i have to an extent managed to kind of counter that and and i hope it, it'll be different for every person like everyone has their money bugbears and their money anxieties but everyone has them there are very few people who are like yeah totally fine about money mm problem. And again, it's not necessarily you'll have different problems at different ends of the wealth spectrum, but you will still have problems.
0: Yeah, yeah they kind of come with you wherever you go. I've I've discovered. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you can be earning ten times what you
1: were earning, you know, three years ago, and you will still have money problems. You might not be the same ones. You might not be worried about how to pay your rent every month, but you will still have money hangups. Maybe you'll feel guilty about people who. You know, friends or family who you kind of not outgrown, but who you now earn more than. You know, maybe people will start asking you for financial help, and you, you feel a bit uncomfortable about it. You will still have that. You know, I was listening to an episode of um, the Dear Sugars mm. podcast where Oprah Winfrey was talking about how she. I mean, obviously she's a billionaire, and she has a lot of people, you know, popping up out of the woodwork as she as she got more and more wealthy, and and she talked about. Setting boundaries with her own family, and saying, "I'm giving you this. This is what it's for, and there'll be no more." Wow, that's tough. It's really tough. And 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 also, it's and it's not out of you know she's a literal billionaire. It's not out of greed. She can give and she could give and give and give, and it won't make a dent. But for her, it's about preserving certain relationships. Mm. And I think that's the thing that's even harder because she obviously had endless you know has an endless pot of money basically and I think that sounded like it was difficult for the people on the other side to be like well you have it why don't you give it to me
0: yes yeah uh,
1: so it's it's it, it follows you around whatever whatever sort of level
0: you're at it's been really interesting for me because previously my husband was the breadwinner and mm-hmm. I kind of supplemented the income with my day job and now I'm the breadwinner and he works for me and what you were saying then about having friends you can talk to, because I have one friend who's in the same situation. And I think if it wasn't for her, I would feel I'd feel like a monster sometimes because there are so many things that come up in our relationship now about money that are brand new to both of us. Totally. And yeah, that me too is so powerful. Yeah, I
1: think you have to really seek out people. And that is quite a unique uh position that you're in or not that unique, but. You know, you obviously don't know that many people in that situation. I I don't really know that many people in that situation. Um, and it's so fraught in so many ways because of external social pressures and perceptions. Um, and you absolutely need to have someone to talk about it with who can be like, yeah, me too. Oh, I totally understand. And then you can kind of bounce off each other and be like, oh, this is how I sort it out. Or just knowing that what you're feeling or what you're going through is normal and it, to be expected is really good. Like, I think there was something for me that I I discovered um, when I was researching the book about a particular kind of money behaviour that I have. That I always thought was really unique to me. And then I found out
0: it's like 25% of the population. <laughs> I was like, oh,
1: OK. And I just felt
0: much better about it. Takes it takes the shame out of it, I think, doesn't I think it? That. Because we're blaming ourselves like we're the only one. And when you realise it's kind of just the human condition then that, ma- that made me feel empowered to be like, oh, okay, well, I can tackle this now. Then now I understand what it is. Exactly, exactly. We've kind of sort of touched on this, but from the outside, you do seem like someone who is successful enough and sorted enough that self doubt doesn't seem to kind of be on your radar. You seem to have such a really strong sense of who you are. But I, I know from enough conversations with other people that self-doubt kind of finds a way in for all of us. So I wondered what it shows up as for you.
1: Yeah, I think for me it's I have a huge worry and fear that I'm not doing enough. Oh, um and I think in the past that's led to me overcommitting myself and actually feeling a bit burnt out and, and one of the decisions I made at the start of this year was to just kind of do less and like to do it better. So really going for quality over quantity because I realized that in the past couple of years and you know, first couple of years being self-employed, I was like, I need to do this, I need to do that and I because I spread myself so thin I always felt like a lot of my efforts were quite mediocre, but I was also comparing myself maybe to somebody who does that one thing full time. So mm. I compare my writing efforts to someone who is a full time writer. I compare my podcast efforts to someone who literally runs a podcast as a business and does that, you know, three or four days a week. or, You know, does that full time or maybe has a team around them yeah. or run a company. And I compare the women who platform again to people who do that full time. And and the reality is I don't do any of those things full time um and on the one hand i made a decision to kind of pull back on certain things and on the other i kind of had to realize that that that's just not helpful to me so for me it was a bit of comparison around the quality of other people's output not so much their success but just the quality of it and being like oh mine isn't as good as that and i'm not as good a writer and my podcast isn't as good or my podcast doesn't get as many listens and that sort of thing um so I I think self-doubt definitely crept in there but then I think I'm now just trying to focus on the things I am really good at um and pour my efforts into those and and also realizing that it's quite cyclical um and so you know now is maybe a time for me to kind of be hunkering down and, and working on projects behind the scenes that hopefully you know will come to fruition in in a year or two years or six months or whatever um But for me, it's just trying not to compare my professional achievements with other people's, because especially given the space I operate in, I'm thinking about work every day and every hour of every day, Mm -hmm. situations and, you know, it's constant. My work, my career is about careers. so it can kind of get a little bit much sometimes but I think I'm getting better at that
0: oh yeah I'm a big believer in there being seasons for everything and and kind of learning to trust that has been huge for me as well yeah um and it kind of it's interesting because you said earlier you're not sure if you you call yourself an entrepreneur at the moment because you've taken um woman who's kind of on the back burner but like when you said that to me I was like but of course she's still as an entrepreneur of course that is still a huge part of what you've created
1: I mean, yes, and I'm probably being like, I don't know, too self deprecating about it. And it still very much exists and is thriving as a brand. But it, it's just one of those things that, unless I'm like, it took me a while to call myself, I think it took me until a while after my first book came out to call myself writer. And I was mm. like, well, you're a published author now, so you can't really doubt it. And I think that's legit enough. But it took me a while to to kind of really label myself certain things because I felt like I was being overly presumptuous and also I looked at people who sometimes were overly presumptuous and was like, I, I don't want to fall into that trap and and that for me is something I'm really conscious about like I don't like to I don't I never undersell myself but I don't like to oversell myself either.
0: You don't want to be that person on the x factor who thinks that they're an amazing singer. was <laughs> <Yeah, I'm just laughs>
1: dishonest about their achievements or the the scope of their achievements and the depth of their achievements. Like I see myself as still very much a work in progress. And like I say, I'm, I'm not overly self-deprecating. I I don't think, and I, I don't undersell myself. Um, I know what my strengths are and I know what my achievements are, but I also, I just, I just find it quite, um, I think you just have to be quite honest about it because it, it diminishes your credibility, I think. Yes. If you oversell yourself and I think it's really, and if, and if other people figure it out, I think that really diminishes your credibility. So I really want to avoid doing that
0: it is as well though I think something that women I'm sure I've seen research that says women do this more than men whereas the men are, are much more comfortable saying yes I'm a writer or yes I've got this skill set that you need for this job and Absolutely. as women we we want that validation first so that we feel I, safe
1: yeah I mean the number of you know men I know who sort of call themselves creative directors and I'm like what have you actually done <laughs> um and then there are women doing amazing things who, who won't own those titles. Um, and, I, and I I am – that's the thing. It's like I am careful not to fall into the trap of underselling myself. But I think I just like being pretty on the nose, just quite honest, and like, I know where I am. And also, mm-hmm. it's, it's like, I also have a lot um, that I want to do and to achieve. And so, you know, when people refer to themselves as iconic, I'm like, well –
0: do you people know, do I, that? They call themselves iconic? You know, I'd, I'd like to one
1: day maybe be in a position to be like, yeah, I am pretty iconic, but I know I'm not there. So why would I call myself that? You know, I, I want to kind of, there's no point in, in, in positioning yourself as like the the voice of our age or the best writer of all time when when you're not there yet. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I would like to get there and then be able to call myself that. But if you start calling yourself that when you've just, you know, written one, Say moderately successful book, then where where else is there for you to go or to yeah. write, um... Except down. Yeah, exactly. And it's and it's don't be too early to kind of claim to claim things like that. I think.
0: I guess it's almost like another one of those macho business conventions, isn't it? Yeah. Like the hard the hard capitalist cell and the slightly cutthroat world, and it is that like say you there straight away, like fake yeah. it till you make it. Exactly. I just don't like that. I think that's just. I don't know.
1: I part of I like having something to to strive for. I think I'm a real striver, so yeah
0: And I believe that our people, like the the people we're connecting with, can see the difference totally. and would I, see through that.
1: Yeah, I think it's a lot more obvious. There are a lot of uh scammers out there and I think it's 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 obvious. Um I think it's a lot more obvious that people than people think it is. So um I'd rather pleasantly surprise people than than disappoint.
0: A take where can people find more of your work when they have listened to this and want more of your wisdom?
1: Sure. So you can buy my career guide, little black book, a toolkit for working women, you know, on Amazon or all good bookstores. You can listen to my podcast in good company, again, on wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you follow at Women Who on Twitter or Instagram, you can find everything you need to about the Women Who community there.
0: Thank you so much for talking to us. This has been brilliant. Show Thank notes for this for episode are at meandorla.co.uk forward slash podcast 66, where I'm going to link to all of Atega's online presence and platforms, as well as everything we've talked about in this week's episode. I will be back with a live podcast recording from my little book tour for next week's episode. So I hope you can join me, whether that's in person, in the flesh, or in your downloads a few days later. I hope you are having an awesome week and I will see you then.